Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 63. As is our custom, usually, not always, but usually, on the day that we come to the Lord's table, we also look at a psalm as our thoughts. And it's amazing how this psalm that we're going to look at this morning is so appropriate for coming to the Lord's table. The attitude that David expresses. In this psalm, David is, is in the wilderness. He's not in the comforts of Jerusalem. He's not in an area where he feels like he has all the creature comforts that he would enjoy, but he's running for his life. And so he's struggling a bit in some ways. There's part of the psalm that could almost be seen as a lament, but the, the bulk of the psalm is pointing to the Lord himself and him saying what his heartfelt is and what our heartfelt ought to be as we approach God, as we come into his presence. I want to read the psalm, Psalm 63, and then we'll make some comments on it, and then we'll come to this table that is always so special. Psalm 63, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 8. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. Because of that, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food, and my mouth with pray, with, will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I mean, you just feel the, the intensity that the, that the writer here is talking about. He, he, he is, oh God, my God. You are my God. I worship you. I love you. I adore you. Even though I'm running from my life, even though I'm living in the wilderness, even though it's dry and parched in so many ways, my heart wants you more than anything else. Your love to me is more, more precious than even life itself, David says, as he makes this expression. There are really two things David says in this psalm that I think it's important that we see. He talks about his longing for God in verse 1. And in verses 2 through 8, he talks about his satisfaction in God. There's a longing for God in the midst of struggles and trials. There's a longing to see his presence in a fresh and a new way. But even in the midst of those trials and their, the, the suffering that he may be going through, and in the midst of that longing for him, there's a satisfaction that he finds in God that he finds nowhere else, that he, that he pursues nowhere else, that he can think of nowhere else he could find that. Because it's the only place in all the world where real satisfaction, real joy, real peace can be found. It's in longing after, pursuing after, and reaching for God as a believer. Verse 1 is a wonderful expression of the very heart of faith. 
Now, you don't say that if you don't have faith. If you've not trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then, then there is no longing in your heart for Him. You, you cannot say with the psalmist, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as though I were in a dry and a parched land. I mean, the truth is, if, if there is no faith in your life in the true and the living God, there will be no hunger. There will be no pursuing. There will be no desire like David expresses here. He gives us intense longing for God. It's all, it, it could be described as an appetite for God, a, a passion to, to experience Him every single day. He uses some expressions that might be confusing in our vocabulary today. He talks about, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. And when we think of sanctuary, we think about this building, don't we? We think about, come, we come together, we meet in the sanctuary. That's not what David was totally thinking about. He was thinking about the temple without a doubt. He was thinking about the tabernacle where, where God resided, where God expressed his presence in such a vivid way to the children of Israel. But in reality, when he says, I, I, have, I have looked upon you, beholding your power and your glory in the sanctuary, he's really just talking about in your presence. I, I've seen that power. I've seen that glory. I've experienced your life in the sanctuary, in the presence of your spirit, in the presence of your work in my life. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've known it. And I long for it over and over and over. When C.S. Lewis was writing his reflections on the Psalms back in the 40s, 1940s, he wrote this as he was getting ready to prepare those. He said, these poets, talking about the psalmist, these poets knew far less reason than we for loving God. They did not know that He offered them eternal joy, still less that He would die to win it for them. Yet they express a longing for Him, for His mere presence, which is all too often missing, all too often not reflected in modern Christianity. They long to live all their days in the temple, that is, in His presence, so that they may constantly see, as, he, as the psalmist says in Psalm 27, the fair beauty of the Lord. They're, they're longing to go up to Jerusalem and appear before, Psalm 42 says, be, appear before the presence of God. It's like a physical thirst. From Jerusalem, His presence flashes out Psalmist says in Psalm 50, in perfect beauty. And lacking that encounter with him, their souls are parched like a waterless countryside, which is what he says in Psalm 63 and verse 2. Lewis says, here is, here is how these men writing these psalms a thousand years before Christ. Here's what they felt. Here's what they longed for. Here's what they desired more than anything else in their whole life. They wanted to know Him. They wanted to experience His presence. They wanted to be there with Him at all times. And they didn't know about the eternal joy. There were glimpses of it in the Old Covenant. There were expressions of it in sort of a, a cryptic sort of way in the Old Covenant. And they, they knew by prophecy that Christ was coming, that there would be an incarnation of the living God in our presence on this earth. But they didn't understand the where, when and the where and the how exactly as it had been prophesied. So they, they knew nothing that we know now 
And yet they longed with a passionate longing. They longed with a heartfelt desire that burned in their bosom as they said, Lord, we, we just want to know you. We just want to express, we want to feel the expression of your presence in all ways. And I would say, as Lewis said, how little of this is found today. Most people today do not even know that it is God that their souls truly desire. I'm doing an article for, for Sacred Winds for their program. They'll be here on June the 10th to sing and, and share with us on that Monday evening. And I'm writing the article for the program about the, the transcendentals, which is the true, the beautiful, and the good. And, and as I'm writing that article, I'm reflecting on this matter, and I realize that the true, the beautiful, and the good are things that we all want, we all desire to pursue. We sometimes go about it artificially. We pursue artificial beauty. We, per, we pursue what is a relative goodness we hope is fairly good. We, we pursue truth, and yet we sometimes are not sure that we're pursuing the truth. But when you think about those transcendentals, they're things that come from God expressed to us, like in Psalm 19 and in Revelation chapter 5. When you look at those transcend, uh, transcendents, those transcendentals, what you recognize is, is when we long for truth, beauty, and goodness, we're really longing for God. Because they express his essence. He is the source of all of those. And yet most people pursue life, pursue truth, goodness, and beauty. And never realize it's really, their, it's really God that their souls are pursuing after. They're seeking satisfaction in other things where there will never be satisfaction. Others know God. They've had an experience with Christ, they've trusted Christ, but they do not cultivate His presence. They do not long after Him. They are easily distracted by the things of the world. They're easily distracted by other pursuits. They, they know they should do this, but they do this. And, and many just don't cultivate His presence. So how do you cultivate His presence? Well, you cultivate His presence by spending time with Him in His Word. You can't expect God's presence to be a reality in your life when the difficult times come if you're not spending time alone with Him in His Word, letting Him speak to you through His Word, and you speaking to Him in prayer when the good times are there. You can't expect Him to show up in a, in a magnificent way during the bad times. David knew God's presence in the bad times because he knew he had pursued God even in the good times. Is it not this above everything that explains the weakness of the contemporary church? Is it not this above everything else that displays why we and explains why we are not being the force for righteousness and for godliness in the world we live in? It's because we spend one hour talking about pursuing God, talking about pursuing His presence, and then we spend hour after hour after hour after hour, day after day, Sadly, not even thinking about it. The psalmist says, oh, Lord, oh, you are my God. Oh, God, you are my God, and in you I pursue. This lack of pursuit is what makes us individually spiritually hollow. The church spiritually ineffective and individually makes us spiritually hollow. And, you know, it's, it, it's a reality that what David is challenging us with there in verse 1, uh, just, just in, in verse 1 when he says, Oh God, you are my God, I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh 
faints for you. That which David challenges us to do by his own expression is exactly what we should be challenged with in the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's Supper once a month on the third Sunday, when we gather in this place and we, we talk about the Lord's Supper and we, we want to specifically think on that, this table calls us to say, my God, you are my God. You have redeemed me, if you are a believer, from my sin and from death and have clothed me, as we sang about earlier, in your righteousness, your perfect righteousness. We come to this table to say, Lord, we recognize your body, we recognize your blood, we recognize that you have been our sacrifice and our substitute. You have, you have suffered what we should have suffered. You have stood in our place, received the wrath that was reserved for us, and you took it so that we wouldn't have to as we place our trust and our hope in you. Derek Kidner, the Old Testament scholar, says about this particular verse, verse 1, he said, There may be other songs that equal this outpouring of devotion, but there are few, if any, that surpass it. Our devotion is to be to God and God alone. And so, so David talks about his longing for God in verse 1. Then he comes to verses 2 through 8, and really what he talks about is his satisfaction in God. In his satisfaction. You know, a, a thousand years before, or excuse me, a thousand years after David wrote this, his greatest descendant, his greater descendant, as the Scripture refers to him, who is the seed of David, in the prophetic line of Messiah, is, is Jesus. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, He said, said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Now David did not know those specific words, but honestly that's exactly what he's saying in, in, in these verses 2 through 8. He's expressing the same thing that Jesus would express a thousand or so years later. He didn't know the reality of it, but he knew, the, he knew the presence of God in a special way. And so in this section, he elaborates on three things, really. He elaborates on his past experience with God, his present experience with God, and, and what we would call his future, his hope and looking to the future. Here's what he says. In verse 2, he said, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. In other words, he says... There have been those joyous moments that I remember so well when I entered into your presence in a special way, when I was meditating upon your truth and your word, meditating upon your glory and your power. There have been those times when I just entered into your presence in such a glorious way that, that I revel in that even now in the wilderness, even though there's pain and there's suffering. That's why the Scripture so often calls upon us to remember. That's why the Scripture so often says, remember the blessings of God of your youth. Remember the things of God, the works of God in your life that are past, that you may be tempted to kind of take for granted. Remember those and think upon them. And David said, that's exactly what I'm doing. And in the memory of those joyous moments, it makes David's present circumstances very painful. That's the lament part. 
I, I knew that presence. I rejoiced in that presence. It was so sweet and so good and so joy-filled. And now I'm running for my life and I'm hiding in the wilderness. And that's a tough place to be. So he talks about the past. Then he talks about the present. Verses 3 and 6 and 7 and 8 all talk about what's going on in the present. He says in verse he says in verse 3, he says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David's facing potential death here. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him out here in the wilderness. And yet he says, listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because your steadfast love, knowing that you love me, Father, is, is greater than life itself. Think about the Apostle Paul's statement, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live on in this body is to serve Christ and be obedient to Christ and and pursue Christ and desire Christ. But to die is gain because I go into his perfect presence at that point and stand perfect before him. Again, as we sang this morning, what a glorious truth. Or or in verse verse 6 where he says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night. I'm laying here in, in hiding, sleeping, and maybe not sleeping so well. Laying awake at night thinking my enemy may come upon me at any moment. But when I do that, I don't think about my enemy. I think about you. I concentrate upon you. I remember you upon my bed. I meditate upon you in the watches of the night. Why? Because verse 7 says, you are my help. And verse 8 says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. No matter what's happening around me, no matter how difficult circumstances appear to be, no matter how other people treat me, or how my financial difficulties may come, or how I may, str- I may struggle with physical needs and physical ill health, no matter what. I know you, Lord. I have an intimate relationship with you because of your work through Christ by the Holy Spirit in, in, in my life. I have a work that you've done, and I hold, I hold fast to that. I desire that. But more important than that, I know that your right hand upholds me. That's a, that's a graphic image. I, don't, I, I hope you see how graphic that image is there. Where the, where, the, where the psalmist says, your right hand upholds me. Have you ever been in a tough time and had a friend just come along? And maybe he or she doesn't know what's going on in your life. Maybe they, they have no idea, but they can tell you're hurting. And, and they just come alongside and they lay their hand upon your shoulder their right hand upon your shoulder. Or maybe you're physically struggling and they put their right hand under your arm and they help you along and they they get you to a seat or they get you where you need to go. Their, Their right hand comforts you. Their right hand upholds you. Their right hand gives you encouragement. That's what David's saying here. I know your presence, Lord, and I know your glory in such a way that even right now what I'm going through, your right hand hand upholds me more than anything else I'll not fear my enemy I'll not fear the wilderness 
I'll not fear my circumstances because you are upholding me by your right hand. David is saying even though he might be cut off from the temple, cut off from Jerusalem, God has not cut himself off from David. There may be times when you feel cut off from whatever, your church, cut off from your group that brings you encouragement. You're off by yourself somewhere. But but God wants you to know, and and this table will remind us as we take of that body and drink of that that blood of Christ symbolically before us, we, we recognize that we may be separated from those in this life who care about us, but the one who cares about us the most never is departed from us, is never away from us. Spurgeon says of this psalm, he said, as David writes this, there is no desert in his heart, though there was a desert all around him. His heart was, was fed by the springs of living water from, from Christ the Lord, and he cared for him. But then there's the future aspect. In verse 5, David says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will, see, will praise you with joyful lips. I remember what you've done. And when I lay on my bed in the middle of the night, I I focus my attention on you. As I've gotten older, there's been a phenomenon that's happened in my life. I used to hit the bed, go straight to sleep, and whenever my alarm went off the next morning, I got up. For the last few years, I lay down at night and I can't get comfortable. My shoulder hurts, my back hurts, something hurts. I finally get comfortable, I finally get off to sleep, and and lo and behold, I'm so happy I'm asleep. I I know I am happy because I am asleep, but but somewhere in the middle of the night, usually about two hours later, I wake up for no apparent reason. I just wake up. Retta's sleeping beautifully, but I'm, I'm awake, and I have more trouble going back to sleep the second time than I did the first time, and so so I, I, I could just lay there and complain about it. I could say, God, help me go to sleep. I am miserable here laying on this pillow. It's a comfortable pillow. It's a comfortable bed, but, but man, I don't have any enemies around me. But, but Lord, right now my enemy is, is wakefulness. Can you help me go to sleep? You know, I found one of the greatest things to do is when I'm there, I just start quoting Scripture that I know about the, the glory of God. The character of God. I think about Psalm 19. The heavens declare your glory. And as I'm laying here, Lord, in this bed, I want to meditate upon you. And somewhere in the midst of that, I'll go back to sleep for a couple hours. Then I'll wake up again. And I've learned rather than complaining about not being able to sleep, I just start worshiping. I do it quietly so as not to wake up my wife. I don't quote the scripture out loud. I don't sing hymns out loud. But in my mind, they're going on constantly. And his presence is there with me. So he remembered the past. He remembered the present, what's going on and being upheld by God. And he said, and I will, 
said verse, verse, verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I, I may be going through times now, Lord, but as I lay on my bed and meditate on your character and think about your grace and your goodness, I want you to know, Lord, my commitment is I will praise you before the people if I so live. That's what this table calls us to. To recognize the past that 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung on a cross as the crucified Messiah. He hung there as God incarnate. God who took on flesh, as John said in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And on down a little bit further, he said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us, literally tabernacled among us. This one who's on the cross is God, the eternal God, the creator God, the sustainer God, who took on flesh in order to be the redeeming God, to redeem his people. So this table reminds us of his body that hung on the cross and his blood that was shed on the cross for the new covenant to be established in his blood. So it reminds us of the past. But it also makes us think about the presence. As we hold those elements in our hands, as we talk about the significance of them, it reminds us that His salvation is not something that is just past tense that, that we're now over with, but it's something that is a reality right now. And I walk in this grace, and I stand in this grace, and I stand in His glory, and I stand in His power because of those elements, His body and His blood that was given for us. Jesus told us to do it, and in so doing it, proclaim His coming. That He has come, and that He is coming. So there's the past, the present, and the future that all fit into the elements of this table. He is coming again. There is no doubt about that. We don't know the time. We don't know the hour. We don't know the place exactly. But we know He's coming. And this meal, this table that He spreads for us reminds us of that. And we glory in that. As we come to this table this morning, In just a few minutes, I want to ask you to do that very thing. I want to ask you to think about the past, the wondrous deeds that He has done in your life through salvation and other wondrous deeds. I want you to think about the present that He's caring for you right now. And I want you to think about the future, what you are called to proclaim through taking of this meal, His coming again. And I want you to thank Him. If you're a believer, you have so much to thank Him about. If you're in Christ, you have so much to say, Oh, Lord, oh, God, you are my God, and you have entered into a covenant relationship with me that is inexplicable apart from the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, David is saying, And the table is saying, we as believers need a new, we need a fresh panting after the presence of God. Psalmist says, the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. As we pray before we enter into this 
this observance, would you pray that God would give you a fresh panting after Him? More than anything else, more than anything else in this whole world. Let's pray. As we pray, our deacons are going to come and prepare. Lord Jesus, we come before you today literally wanting you to school us afresh in what we might call pant theology. Panting after you. Asking you, Lord, for the gift of panting after you. Desiring you. Wanting you more than anything or anyone else in all of history or all of the cosmos. Lord, renew and intensify our thirst for you. Make us so faint that unless you dehydrate our hearts with the gospel, we will surely perish. Lord, it's a dangerous thing to no longer deeply crave fellowship with you. It's a deceptive thing to enjoy but no longer actually feel that we need you. It's a deceitful thing to be satisfied with correct theology about you without experiencing rich communion with you. Lord, it is even a demonic thing to find our ultimate satisfaction in anyone or anything else but you. Lord Jesus, only your steadfast love is better than life. Only your contra-conditional, irrepressible affection for us. Nothing else will do. Lord, you have created that gospel-shaped vacuum in our hearts, a screaming, empty place that fit, it fits only you and is filled only by you. Forgive us, Lord, when we try to cram human love or creature comforts or cultural acclaim or family reputation or anything else into that place. Don't let us be too easily satisfied. Give us redemptive discontent until our hearts rest again in you. Lord Jesus, we're asking this not just for ourselves individually, but for our churches as well and for Grace Baptist Church specifically. Forgive us, Lord, when we get so organized and so creative and so right that we no longer miss your presence. Lord, sometimes we have to ask, is it really you we're worshiping or are we just worshiping worship? Is it really you we are serving, or are we just serving ourselves and our programs as religious consumers? Are we really delighting in you, or are we just enjoying ourselves? Lord, if you actually left the house, how long would it take before we knew the difference? In all honesty, Jesus, 
how much of what we do in our churches doesn't require the Holy Spirit at all. Show us what that is. Convict us of that as sin. Forgive us, O Lord, and change us into the image of Christ. Let us see and experience your power and glory in fresh ways, Lord Jesus. We want to lift our hearts. We want to lift our voices. We want to lift our hands. Literally, Lord, we want to lift our whole lives to you as a sacrifice of praise and as an expression of the joy that fills our hearts. Lord, who do we have in heaven but you? And being with you makes all other delights and desires seem as empty nothings. Who do we have in heaven but you? And what should we desire on earth besides you? Lord, may the truth and the grace of the gospel satisfy us as fat and rich food. May it fill us. May it make us expectant as we lift voices and hearts and hands and lives to you. Lord, may that expression be fresh. May that panting be fresh. May that desire be fresh. Father, Use this communion to remind us of communion with you and communion with one another. We pray in Jesus' holy and blessed name. Amen.